Welcome back to the Gigabyte Weekly Podcast. Not so weekly, as it's been a couple of months now since we've we've finished out the first season. We're happy to announce that we're we're coming back to it. We've been really busy, but we're really excited to kind of get our teeth into some interesting topics. Um, speaking of which, today's topic is kind of a nice way to get back into it. It's thoughts on the market, kind of summing up at the end of Q1. Where are we right now? I think it's an interesting way to jump in. The landscape's very different since we did our last podcast. So enjoy. What we know now is Wall Street can bring down Main Street. And uh, frankly, I'm going to tell you, it's a little scary. Your company is now bankrupt. Our economy is in a state of crisis. Did you mislead your investors? And I remind you, now, you continue to deflect personal responsibility. You know what happens? People start to worry. So out of this worry, we have something called the Bitcoin. It's an accepted currency, and it's zooming in value lately. Just unbelievable how much And we're back with James. James, how are you? Doing great, Sam. It is great to be back doing this. You know, obviously it hasn't been so weekly, but, you know, hopefully we can get back into it. And like you said, it's a great topic to start it all again with. Yeah, I think it's a it's a nice way that we're calling it season two, just because we didn't do it for ages. I think you'll, you'll remember, you know, we ended the last season with uh, Paul Ennis, which was a great, you know, final episode. We went into loads of detail. I think everybody learned a lot from that episode, too. That was probably my favorite one. Um, I, I like looking at the social implications of Ethereum. It's definitely a, a departure from how we'd normally look at things. And to be honest, I think it's safe to say, James, maybe we're taking a step up in terms of how much detail we're going to go into this season. I think last season was completely introductory. Is for people who are just dipping their toes in the water and we're by all means not going to run away with it this time. But I'd like to be able to talk about some topics that maybe are less beginner-friendly, like the metaverse and maybe a little bit more advanced look at NFTs and macroeconomics. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's also the market has changed so much. I mean, people are educating themselves more about crypto in general. And I think it also highlights an important thing to maybe touch on is that we as a company have changed a lot. Even in the last four months, we've grown. Things are changing. I think it's uh, it's very relevant for us now to talk in a little, little bit more detail. Yeah, and that's a good transition now, James, to talk about our thoughts on the market. So the way we've kind of divvied it up here, this is mainly going to be how we view the market, which is macro-led. We think right now macroeconomic and political events are what's kind of raising over the market right now. Um, We'll talk a little bit about what's going on in crypto, but I think that the dominant narratives right now are in macro. So James, you want to start us off. What's an interesting point and narrative in the market that you're looking at at the moment? You know, I think Q1 in general has been... A little bit crazy. Like, let's be totally honest. We had interest rate interest rate hikes in the first half, and then we have the invasion of Ukraine in the second half. Two very different macro events, but they had a similar impact on price action in the market. So, I mean, the the interest rate hike interest rate hike topic is is important because it was simmering actually back in Q four of twenty twenty one when it was first announced. And this is the, this well, it was the first interest interest rate hike since twenty eighteen, and um, we saw it actually the first hike take place in March of this year. But, you know, crypto has only existed in this modern form really since 2016. I mean, you can go back to the early days of Bitcoin, but Ethereum and the whole altcoin market has really only existed since 2015, 2016. So this is the first real test of crypto's behavior in an economic situation like this. I think it's safe to say there was a lot of fear in the markets. A lot of it might have been unjustified, but there was a lot of fear in the markets. And, you know, it it is great to have the first hike behind us now. We can see price actions start to slowly recover. Um, But I don't think it's all 
you know, smooth sailing just yet. Yeah, and it's important to note why we're seeing the interest rate hikes. Um, and that's because record high inflation over the last 40 years is kind of eating up the US dollar right now. And um, that that's driving a lot of separate sub-narratives, I suppose you'd call it. So one being we're seeing interest rates, right? So they've had to hike that in order to fight the inflation. Um, cost of living is going up across the world. Even here in Ireland, we're, we're seeing this like crazy, especially in the energy department. Um, gas prices across the world are kind of going up quite a lot. Another narrative within the interest rate hike, I think we're seeing gold struggle as a store of value, which traditionally you wouldn't see that. What are your thoughts on that, James? Yeah, I think it it's a testament to the changing um, economic environment. Um, you know, it's an, it's an, there's a new class of wealthy around the world who have different ideologies about what determines a store of value. I mean, there was a Bloomberg um, report yesterday that discussed the traditional 60-40 portfolio split, 60% equities, 40% bonds. And the new theory is you should have some digital asset exposure in there as well. Between 5 and 15% is what this Bloomberg article was recommending. So, I mean, it just it highlights the changing narrative. Gold is a old form of of kind of wealth storage. Yeah, and I think that narrative is something we spoke about in, in our podcast uh, nearly a year ago, I would say, well, at least a couple of months ago, where we saw Bitcoin's place in the market as being something that could eat into gold's market share. And if you look at a chart of Bitcoin against gold, you're seeing it absolutely demolished right now. Bitcoin's really, really winning out. Um, whether that's just as a store of value or whether that's driven off another macro event, which we're seeing, which is a nice transition into, James. Um, why would you hold the US dollar right now? And we're seeing the Western sanctions against Russia, while justified, absolutely, the atrocity that's gone on in Ukraine, absolutely, the Russians need to, well, the Russian government need to suffer for that. But what we're actually seeing is sovereignty over uh, over currencies and foreign exchanges is, is really, it's in the dirt, to be honest. I, I think... One thing, especially the SWIFT banking system sanction. Uh, James, what are your thoughts on that? I think, you know, what SWIFT has become is SWIFT is the banking system for the friendly countries of the United States. So it's a it, it's a Western-run um, global banking system, and in order to participate in it, you must comply with Western ideologies. You must comply with Western-imposed sanctions. I mean, I agree with you. The, the, kind of, the humanitarian crisis going on in Ukraine justifies the horrific sanctions being placed on the Russian government, as they should be. The Russian government should suffer. Regime change is needed. But, you know, it, it highlights a vulnerability in a country's economic stability. You know, SWIFT is the is the global communications platform for interbanks. Yeah, and I think the fact that the, the SWIFT system was able to cut an entire state out, which is fairly big. I mean, it's only the size economically of Italy. But on principle, the fact that that can be done, the fact that you can freeze dollars, the fact that you can cut people's banks out, you can do all that, I think that's a really strong case for non-governmental money, money that can't be touched or manipulated, which is Bitcoin. I think it's um, a testament as well. You know, countries like Russia um, have quite an unstable currency. And a lot of the time, the, uh, the central bank holds foreign currencies. So in Russia's case, US dollars, euros, and that was Putin's war chest. He, well, the theory is he started this war under the illusion he had enough money to support this war. And now we see it's locked up in mainly European banks, but it is locked up. 
Yeah, and I think uh, the last time we saw anything like this was Iran in 2019, where the US sanctioned them by basically saying, you can't use the dollar anymore. And what actually happened then was Bitcoin rallied from that, po that point. Now, whether that's the narrative that actually driv was driving it or other things were going on, of course, I, I think that's something to, to note. I think in, in a unstable environment for currencies and you know where central banks trust are at the all-time low especially the fact that the fed and the us were telling us all this time that inflation's transitory inflation's transitory now they let it get to this point 40-year highs and as well you're also telling central banks the money that you have in your accounts that you know maybe it's the dollar or whatever isn't really your money you we can do what we want to it still despite the fact that you're the one holding it and owning it um, I think that's an interesting narrative for Bitcoin that that we didn't really believe in before. I mean, I, for one, didn't really buy the, the Bitcoin money story as much before. I, I didn't think, I didn't really buy into it, to be honest. But uh, now I think we're seeing a really strong case for it. No, I completely agree, Sam. And, you know, it actually just goes back to the gold topic one final time. You know, gold can be sanctioned. Your gold reserves um, typically... You know, the largest gold um, vault in the world is in London. Um, that can be sanctioned. It can be withheld. It can be frozen. It can be taken from you. Yeah, I think it all comes down to sovereignty. I think right now we're seeing one of the most interesting periods of geopolitics. And I think just kind of what I said earlier was like the dollar is kind of in an interesting spot as a currency. And, you know, maybe this is a bit of a departure to how we normally go about things. But the U.S., their their lack of will to get involved in foreign wars right now, I think, puts strain on the dollar, which is actually good for Bitcoin, right? So if you look at the chart, the dollar being weak is strong for Bitcoin, right? Makes sense. You can think of it right like that way. Um, the fact that the U.S. troops pulled out of Afghanistan, right? The fact that the U.S. pretty much had Russia challenging them, looking them in the eyes and say, do something. Now, sure, it was a non-NATO country, but the U.S. 20, 30 years ago would already be in Ukraine fighting Russia. Um, I, I think that's actually weak for the dollar. You know, the dollar, what gives it value, right? It's backed by one of the strongest militaries in U.S. history, uh, or in global history even. Um, and you call that hard power in politics. The dollar's lost, or at least that hard power has been eroded a bit by the fact that the U.S. is now looking inward, right? It's very individualist. It's very nationalist economy now. They want to deal with their own problems. The U.S. couldn't unite on a front against COVID. They couldn't agree to save American lives. They couldn't They couldn't sort themselves out for that. Now both Democrats and Republicans are looking inward in policy. They want to sort their own stuff out. So I think we're going to see U.S. pulling out of, of the global stage to a little bit. And with that, U.S. hegemony as a whole is going to start falling. And I think with that, it's a great transition into the rise of China. China. China, China, China. Yeah, we can go on. For, we can go on about China for for years, but I mean, just to talk about military power, you know, we're seeing the rise of the Chinese military as well. We're seeing tensions increase between China and Taiwan. Um, I think China's looking at what's happening in Ukraine and thinking, "Hang on a minute." Um, you know, if it, you know, if it was, if it was decision, if it was, if it was, if it was a decision. Sorry, if it was a decision I was making, I'd be looking at the harsh sanctions imposed on Russia for invading uh, sovereign territory. So, I mean, yeah. I, I think the interesting narrative that's happening in China and kind of plays into the a mixture of the crypto and the macro environment story here is early on in February, I believe it was, China launched their CBDC. So, James, what, what is a CBDC? So, it's a central bank digital currency. So, it's a, um, it's, it's hard to describe. It's a form of currency created by a digital bank that's in, sorry, created by a central bank that's entirely digital. 
Yeah, so it's basically it's basically your euro, your dollar, anything like that, but on the blockchain. It's a private centralized blockchain operated by the central bank. And it's worth noting as well, it's not like a euro in a bank account. It's not like a euro on a computer screen. It's a completely different core technology powering it. And I think anyone in crypto is kind of aware of the dangers of CBDCs in that one, they're centralized. So there's a bit of a security risk there. But two, the fact that now you can be monitored, your transactions have to be approved every time. You know, it's it's the least individual power over money. Your, your money doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the central bank, which is concerning. I think it would be a fear of mine that the government could impose restrictions on your purchasing power, what you're allowed to purchase. If you are a, you know, there's there's pros and cons to that. I think the cons outweigh the pros. But I mean, you know, I could be restricted buying good A, good B. I could have a certain amount of A good capped. Um, you know, I mean, there's potential for catastrophic um, kind of power imposing on somebody. Yeah, and I think that kind of fits the narrative that we've seen in China for the last couple of years, which is an authoritarian regime with complete centralized power. Why would they not go for the most centralized currency they can? And one thing, we'll come back to this maybe with a guest in an episode or two, talking about the CBDC, because as a firm, this is something we've been looking at immensely. You know, China wanted their currency to be strong when launching their CBDC, right? They are innovating money as a whole on the global stage putting them on a huge leg up on the US, by the way, which is the ultimate other superpower they're coming for. I think that's a narrative that needs to be looked at more by other people. And I think, you know, China's in, in an interesting position because the ability for them to switch on a digital money system is so much greater than that of the United States or Europe because they're already basically a digital um, payment system run country. You know, the, the likes of Alibaba and Tencent control online transactions in China. Yeah, I think um, the fact that also smart contracts, which if you remember from before, it's something we spoke about, they are actually enabled on the CBDC. So not only is it a superior form of money, right, but it's also actually a competitor to crypto because in theory, this CBDC would, could be built out and you, it could do what Ethereum's doing, right? It, it has those capacities. Now, it won't, of course. The decentralized nature of Ethereum makes it superior, but it's it's a threat to crypto as a whole, I think, that, that needs to be looked at. Then kind of transitioning, James, just as we're kind of moving towards the end here, we've talked a lot about macro. What are things that have happened in crypto so far this quarter that you've been looking at that you think are interesting or something that maybe is a narrative that will continue on for the year? Yeah, I think, you know, in a in a time period like we've had, it's important to remember that not all is bad in crypto. Despite price action not being what we would have hoped for, um, the underlying technologies have only grown in superiority in superiority some superiority um use cases are increasing total user base is increasing total value locked is increasing i mean the likes of cardano which has been on a downward spiral since it made its high of roughly three dollars yeah. you know we're seeing total value locked increase by twenty five thousand percent on cardano we're seeing the development team expand we're seeing smart contracts finally roll out successfully on Cardano. We're seeing the DEXs roll out. I mean, was it, it was Sunday Swap. The long-rumored Cardano DEX is now live. Um, what else are we seeing? We're seeing the likes of Terra Luna take a position in Bitcoin. They're buying $125,000 worth of Bitcoin every day until they reach a cap of $3 billion of Bitcoin. 
Yeah, I think even go back to the Cardano one there, that's an interesting narrative that we've been looking at. I think everyone that we've spoken to and people have come to us asking, you know, why are you still interested in Cardano? And to be honest, after the highs, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't buying into the project at that stage. I think it was overhyped for a good few months. And ultimately, what I think a huge value determinant of a project in the space is what's being built on that network. Why is it interesting? Ethereum has all this being built out. How can you say Cardano is a competitor? And that was the narrative I was going for, for for a couple of months. Now I think at this at this price as well, I think considering they've actually, like James said, finally started building things, some things out. Um, and the the TVL stat there is ridiculous. I know it was low to start with, but that's that's a sign of confidence. And then as well, what you said there about Luna, they're they're backing their stablecoin with more than their own currency. Um, now it's backed by some Bitcoin, and and they're buying right now, which is um, good for the space as a whole. Yeah, I think you know. You know, just going back to the Cardano thing for one minute, it's important to look at the elements of what a blockchain is capable of doing. You've got your DeFi, your NFTs, your smart contracts. Um, you know, Cardano checks all three of them out. Whilst, yes, the DeFi and NFT space is very early days in Cardano, it is growing. You know, Cardano is faster than Ethereum. Cardano is super secure. It's advertising itself more as a commercial-style blockchain. But it is it has the bones and the core ingredients to be massively successful. And what we need to see is we need to see the community come back to Cardano. I think a lot of people, unfortunately, due to the price action, left Cardano. And, you know, you hate to determine a, a underlying technology success based on the monetary value of its, of its token, but that is the case in this current state of crypto. So we need to see that return. Yeah, and I think interesting... You know, comparing Ethereum and Cardano, one thing that Ethereum decided going for is the NFTs, and I think that's a nice way to kind of go into it. We've seen a bit of a slowdown, I think, in the NFT market. I think things have become a little bit stagnant. I was curious going into the year, right, we we predicted, I'm sure we said it before, we'd see a volatile 2022. We've definitely seen that. We've seen lows and highs, like massive bounces in a short enough period of time. I wanted to see how would NFTs hold up when Ethereum price action is negative, when Bitcoin's collapsing? And the answer is not amazingly. I think they're still there, they're still interest, but I, I, I'd imagine if you're looking at these stats, it's it's not where it was. The hype has definitely slowed down uh, on um, on social media. I think it's important to remember that NFTs are not just bored apes. It's not just the Yuga Labs projects. You know, there's so much more to it. And yes, we saw the likes of uh, Yuga Labs um, take control of CryptoPunks, we saw the IP get given back to the individual holders. So we saw a massive, uh, massive movements. And, you know, the price of those individual NFTs did remain quite high. But when you look at kind of west of the Pecos in this situation, it's where we saw some negative activity. You know, at the beginning of the year, NFTs were still very much in the hype stage of growth and the valuation of them. So the floor price was still increasing, but closer to the second half of Q1, end of February, March, yeah. Yeah, and, and to be honest, that's why I think we took this macro-led approach to this this episode, because we believe that that's a major driver and that's something we've been looking at massively. I think for the first time in a while, crypto's become more of a macro-asset than a micro-asset, I guess you'd call it. Like, as in, crypto-driven narratives, I don't think are really moving the price right now. I think it's traditional narratives that we've seen that would traditionally move equities and stuff like the weirdest correlation that we look at now is correlations between chinese tech stocks there's an etf you can track and altcoins 
they kind of move off similar narratives right now, which is not something I ever thought I'd be watching. But here we are. I think a nice way to close it out, James, here today is where do you think we're going from here in general on your thoughts on the market? What are you looking at right now in terms of narratives playing out and developing throughout the course of the year? So I'm still bullish on the remaining the remainder of 2022. I do think we're going to have another green year. I don't think it's going to be as extreme as 2021 and certainly not as extreme as 2020. But I do think that we're going to see things still increase. Um, I think we're going to see massive growth in the NFT in the NFT space still. Um, I think a lot of the a lot of the value in a lot of these individual NFTs themselves will come down. But I think we're going to see the use case increase. We're going to see not just the art NFTs. We're going to see music NFTs. We're going to see you know, domain NFTs, we're going to see ticketing. I mean, even in my own personal life, you know, I own my own individual domains. So kind of my Web3 identity is powered by NFTs. That kind of stuff is really going to ramp up, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think profile pick or PFP NFTs, as they're kind of referred to in this space, I think we're going to see them slow down. And that's where the hype has been so far. And I think the opportunity of a lifetime right now is in NFTs that are actually doing stuff. Stuff that, like NFTs that aren't just, you know, pictures of an ape. And of course, there's there's other determinants of value there. Like there's a cultural movement now behind the Board Apes Yacht Club, right? It's now significant. In the same way, I, I guess you'd call it, why is a t-shirt that has the Gucci logo on it any more valuable than something you get in pennies? It's, it's a cultural thing. It's because we've decided this thing is, yeah, sure, it's maybe it's kind of rare, but it's it's significant culturally. And I think that's an interesting way of valuing the Board Ape Yacht Club. Um, for, for me, I think I'm still looking at the macro, um, the macro-driven approaches. I think we want to see how the interest rates, the, the hiking of the interest rates, how they will affect the, the market, whether we'll see, you know, a bounce or uh, if the narrative is going to be the only safe haven asset now is Bitcoin and crypto. We need to get out of dollars, bonds, equities, whatever it is. Um, or are we going to see China CBDC? Is that going to just absolutely take over? And are we going to see ETH 2.0 launch? And are we going to see it successfully launch? I think that's a huge determinant on how we're going to see the second half of the year play out because currently it's due for a summer 2022 launch. You know, there's a there's a funny thing in crypto. ETH 2.0 is only ever two weeks away. It's been two weeks away since 2018. And we're here in 2022, four years later, still nothing. I believe everyone's calling it the merge now. Um, it's a much sexier term, I think. Um, yeah, that's another one, actually, because, you know, the way we've seen traditional money flows in crypto, maybe it would be equity futures are up, right? So people are, are thinking that equities are going to do well. Then money maybe goes into Bitcoin. From Bitcoin, it'll go to Ethereum. Now, I think we've added another step. I think recently it's been Ethereum into AVAX or Luna. These are other projects in the space. And from there, west of the Pecos, as we call it, the rest of the altcoins will kind of move. That's kind of how we see the traditional money cycle in crypto. Yeah, I mean, the, the L1s, 2021 was really Solana's year. It was Ethereum, Solana. And now we are seeing the, the real rise of AVAX in particular, Luna. Um, you know, they're easing market share which is going to make you know the so-called flippening substantially harder yeah i think it's a good thing ultimately in terms of decentralization i i believe and maybe this is somewhat controversial we'll see in the long term a multi-chain future where different blockchains are just challenging themselves for different tasks you know you said cardano maybe is anchoring a little bit towards commercial maybe that'll stop you know the likes of hbar in hedera um, they're really going for commercial partnerships. I think we'll see different chains be good for different things. You know, maybe Ethereum will just, well, it won't, but for example, it could just be the NFT 
chain, right? That's where everyone wants to do it. Now, obviously, that's not the case. Ethereum's far too expensive at the current state. And even, um, you know, the, the so-called controversial Binance Smart Chain, we saw Binance announce two days ago that they're going to create sub-chains for individual subsectors of the Binance Smart Chain platform. So we're going to see NFT chains, DeFi chains, um, smart contract chains. Yeah, I think I think we've got an interesting couple of months and certainly a phenomenal couple of years ahead of us. I mean, we wouldn't be in this space if we didn't believe in it. I wholeheartedly believe in digital assets. I think I prefer the term to cryptocurrencies. There's less of a uh, there's less of a stigma attached to the term. I think um, I think we're set for a really interesting year. I, I'm I'm hoping that people kind of got something from this. You know, understand a little bit about the macro environment that we're looking at. Um, it's it's really good to be back. Uh, and I would say, you know, hopefully we'll we'll have some interesting guests this year and, um, you know, some more interesting topics. I, I definitely want to dig into some of these in a little bit more depth. And I think we'll we'll get some some good people on to talk about it. I think, you know, um, one of my hopes for this season two would be to delve into more individual projects. You know, what is AVAX? Let's do an episode on AVAX. What is Terra Luna? Why does it matter? You know, these are things we're, we're going to talk about this year. Yeah, I think that's a good note to uh, to wrap it up, James. Um Thanks, everyone, for listening anyway. Uh, we'll definitely be getting back to it, hopefully weekly, because it's in the title, <laughs> and we should really get back to that. But, um, yeah, hopefully we'll see you next week. See you guys. <laughs>